0: Thank you all for being here. It's been a great day so far. We're just getting started. So, um, are we ready to go there? Ken? Yes. Okay. Ready. All right. All green. System green. All green. We are, we are ready for liftoff. Got right. speed. Turn this back on. There we go. Okay. Well, again, thank you for being with us today. Uh, I have two presentations that I do on the X 15. One covers the entire program. Uh, But this one I developed specifically to honor one of the pilots of the program, Michael Adams. Uh, He was the uh, first actual American astronaut lost during a space flight. And we're almost 60 years on and hardly anybody even knows who he is. So I definitely wanted to put together his story. This was originally created to honor the 50th anniversary of his loss back in 2017. I thought I was going to give this presentation one time (laughs) on that special occasion, and I've actually been doing it many many times ever since. So thank you for being here. Again, thank you for Ken to have me here today, and I hope you enjoy the presentation and getting to learn more about the life of Michael J.
1: Adams. Tell him the situation where you first gave the uh, the presentation.
0: well, we'll, We'll talk about that afterwards. Oh. Okay. Yeah. So. I may not be alive. <laughs> I know, <laughs> he not all that cake. <laughs> exactly. I'm going to die. It. <laughs> okay, can everybody hear me okay? Just fine. Can you know, everybody can see the. Okay, I'll make sure everything's set up all right. So, I'm here to tell you the story of Major Michael J. Adams of the United States Air Force. He was an exceptional research pilot and astronaut on the X-15 rocket plane, Mm -hmm. the fastest and highest X-plane that ever took to the skies. Adams was the first American astronaut who lost his life during a space flight, and yet little is known about him today. He was a family man with a beautiful wife and three children. I hope that after today you will remember Mike Adams for his part in America's early efforts in space exploration. Frida Adams made a point of attending each flight of the X-15, which her husband, Mike, flew for the Air Force. She recalled the first one saying, It was scary, but exciting. It was like Flash Gordon. (laughs) Friends, Frida would watch what preparation she could. They would bring us out in a trailer and get up pretty close. He'd watch them walk out to the X-15. She waved and hoped that he would see her, but knew that once in his pressure suit, visibility was very limited. I was always standing there wide-eyed. I could still see him walking out slowly because in the suit he had to walk kind of like a robot. (laughs) Once her husband entered the X-15, preparations continued. Eventually the B-52 spooled up its engines and taxied away, then sped down the runway and off into the desert sky. While the one bomber headed to the point on the map where her husband was dropped away to start the X-15 research flight, Frida was taken back to the NASA control room where she watched the bulk of the mission unfold. Once the flight was over and the ground crew had helped Mike from the X-15 cockpit, she hitched a ride back out to the lake bed to greet him. It seems to me I was out on the lake bed most of the time, nothing but big space and all that activity going on. Mike Adams became the 12th and final X-15 pilot to enter the program. He made seven research flights, matching NASA pilot Neil Armstrong. Adams served the shortest amount of time at just over 13 months from first flight to last. He was born Michael James Adams in California's capital city of Sacramento on 5 May 1930 staying in his hometown from grade school at Donner Elementary through two years at Sacramento City College before leaving to join the military. His younger brother, George, told me, when we were growing up, we did all the simple things in the neighborhood. In the summertime, we played kick the can and mumble pay and went to the movies on Saturday. It was a modest upbringing, but we enjoyed it. Mike's first job came while attending Stanford Junior High School, delivering newspapers on his bicycle for the Sacramento Bee. And Mike also spent a lot of time playing with his best friend, Charles Gerdell, who eventually remembered or recommended Mike to Frank Sims at Sims Hardware Store for a second job during their first year in high school. Working at Sims gave Mike a lifelong taste for the outdoors especially target shooting and hunting. Another area where Mike excelled was in school theater, where he earned a special mention in the Sacramento High yearbook. He won a leading part in the drama club senior play with the role of Judge Henry Wilkins in the romantic comedy, Dear Ruth. Outside of dating and hunting, he also enjoyed many other hobbies, such as fixing up old cars, In 1949, Mike acquired a 37 Chevy to rebuild with one of his pals. His brother George said, he worked on that for the better part of a year. It was prime. Talking about Mike, you could easily see that George always looked up to his older brother. He wasn't real talkative, but I think he was liked and respected by those who knew him. Growing up, we slept in the same bedroom, and he'd tell me ghost stories. It was really heavy stuff. (laughs) <laughs> at almost the same time Mike completed his second year at Sacramento City College, the Korean conflict broke out. Mike was a prime candidate to be swept into the Army, so he made an end run around that by promptly enlisting in the Air Force. My dad did sort of the same thing by getting his greetings and went and joined the Navy. So, yeah. After completing basic, Mike applied for officer's candidate school. Two years later, on 25 October 1952, Adams graduated from pilot training school at Webb Air Force Base in Texas. He was then shipped off to Korea in April of 1953, where he flew the F-86 Sabre Fighter Bombers for a total of 49 missions during that conflict, earning him an Air Medal in the process. Returning to stateside, duty changed his personal life forever when he met Frida Beard, a self-professed Southern belle. (laughs) He came back from Korea and went to England Air Force Base in Alexandria, Louisiana, Frida said. That's where I was living. My brother set up parties to try to get us together. Mike succumbed to the pressure and called her for a date. Frida remembered that he asked her to a movie on a Wednesday night and said, well, we don't like each other, at least we won't waste the weekend. (laughs) Frida believed Mike was gonna pop the question over the Christmas holidays, but he was a bit clueless and bought her a 20 gauge shotgun instead. (laughs) She was not enamored of the hunting idea. As Frida told me, he liked flying, Hunting and family in that order. But Mike finally got her him, proposing soon after the new year. <laughs> we married in January 1955, and not long after he had to leave on a six-month tour to Germany. When he returned, it was like a stranger had gotten off that airplane. He came back, and we had to get to know each other all over again. Once Adams had returned from Germany, he pursued his military career in earnest. First up was heading to the University of Oklahoma for his aerospace engineering degree. This was also where Mike and Frieda had their first child, Mike Jr. Next up for Adams was the Massachusetts Institute of Technology for Advanced Studies in Air and Astronautics, and also where his second son, Brent, came on the scene. He returned to Air Force duties at this point being assigned to Chanute Air Force Base, Illinois, as an instructor, and their third child, Elise, came and joined the family there. George also spoke of a special pet which Mike took home to the family on one of his trips. When he was out here on a Christmas vacation, he'd flown into McClellan in Sacramento, and the family acquired their first dog. Mike had bought a Brittany Spaniel, he put it in a cardboard box and tucked it in behind his pilot seat. Can you imagine this poor behind the hell oh, yeah? And flew home. Mike's son Brent explained further, saying, "I remember my dad trying all the time to make him into a bird dog. He didn't like that idea. My mom named him Tripod because us three kids kept fighting over whose dog he really was. <laughs> poor baby." Mike was selected to attend the Experimental Test Pilot School where he was singled out for his flying excellence and as the best scholar of Class 62C, earning him the prestigious Ponce Trophy. He then moved on to the Aerospace Research Pilot School, also known as ARPS. As a member of Class 4, Adams graduated with honors in December of 1963. With two astronaut groups already chosen by this time, Mike and his ARPS classmate, Dave Scott, applied for the third group. For a while, it appeared they might both make the cut. They had flown out to Brooks Air Force Base near San Antonio, Texas, in order to undergo their medical evaluations, which were really horrendous in those days. Then Mike and Dave jetted to Houston for interviews at the new Manned Spacecraft Center. The process was going smoothly. When they returned to Edwards Air Force Base in an F-104 starfighter, their jet engine lost most of its thrust as they were coming in for landing. Mm -hmm. Adams told Scott that if they hit, he would eject. Scott pulled the nose up to flare for the landing, but the back end of the F-104 struck the ground. Mm -hmm. Adams did as he said he would, safely punching away from the accident. Scott, however, stayed with the crippled craft, And in a very serendipitous turn of events, both pilots made exactly the right decision. At impact, the jet engine was rammed forward through the fuselage, smashing through where Adam's seat had just been. Mike would have been crushed if he'd stayed with the aircraft. Scott saved his own life by choosing not to eject. The investigation showed that if he tried to eject, the seat would have malfunctioned and he would have died. Mm. Ejection is a very severe process, and Mike ended up with some temporary back problems, which took him out of the running for that astronaut class. Mm. Dave Scott, however, did get picked and went on to fly into orbit on Gemini 8 Mm. with fellow crew member Neil Armstrong, Mm. also from the X-15, and then to walk on the moon as commander of Apollo 15. Mm. How did Mike react to the news of losing that astronaut slot? Frida recalled he was very stoic, no comment. Even with no words spoken, she could tell how deeply the loss of the NASA astronaut slot had affected him. It was at that moment all her reservations disappeared about Mike's goals of becoming an astronaut. I wanted to know why was he not chosen? It was a disappointment for me, and I'm sure it was a bitter disappointment for him. Having missed it, NASA, Mike then applied to the Manned Orbiting Laboratory Program, sometimes known as just MOL. The spacecraft used a modified two-man Gemini, which would be connected to an orbital module full of surveillance equipment. It was a military spy platform on orbit and could have become America's first space station. Mole had been an attempt to create a standalone military presence in space. Adams became one of the eight mole astronauts announced on 12 November of 1965. Right from the start, mole came under fire for militarizing space. <laughs> Unmanned spy satellites were one thing, but adding astronauts was a completely different matter. Political niceties aside, the Cold War was raging in full force. In that climate, the Air Force continued to garner just lukewarm support for the continuation of MOLE. Political haggling was left to those in Washington, D.C. At the Adams' home, Frida immediately saw the difference in her husband after his astronaut selection. She said, everything was really exciting when he was chosen. Unfortunately, it didn't take long for Mike's elation to fade, however, as he figured out his riding into space with the Air Force might be a long time coming. <laughs> Mike's brother said he definitely wanted to do more flying than what he was doing, but he had at least gotten on to the mole program. Mike expected the fast pace of, it, of Apollo. Instead, the only fast-paced thing in this program was delays. From the beginning, launch dates got further away, not closer. Mike's boredom was palpable and he felt he had to move on. George told me when the slot opened up on the X-15, he jumped at that. Barely eight months after joining the astronaut team on the manned orbiting laboratory, Adams departed for the X-15 officially, joining the rocket plane team on 14 July of 1966. He was elated to get flying towards space in the X-15 as soon as possible, saying in an interview, I'm not particularly anxious to set any records but if there are any, that is just a cheerful fact that goes with the mission. His speeds and altitudes exceed anything I've ever seen before. He moved away from Mole. his move away from Mole was definitely the right one, as the program was shut down without ever achieving a manned flight. Once he shifted to the X-15, Mike perked up again. Free explained, explain, it was like living in a unique world because that was a special thing. They, uh, they treated you differently. The excitement from his wife and brother was much more visible than from Mike himself. Mike was not subject to opening up too much about things, recalled George. He summed up his older brother as quietly competent. If you don't ask him a lot of questions, you're not going to hear a lot from him. Free explained Mike's single-minded purpose. When he set his mind to something, he did not waver. It would get done. Adams went to work preparing for his first X-15 flight. On 6 October 1966, Mike Adams was ready to launch, his first step on what he hoped would finally be his road to space. (coughs) Heading towards Nevada, Adams and X-15 number one were firmly attached to the mothership's right wing pylon. The launch lake was just inside the California border at Hidden Hills Dry Lake. After they turned to get the flight onto the correct heading back to Edwards, Adams dropped away from B-52 number three. It was less than a second after launch for Adams to get the rocket engine out of idle and push forward on the throttle. The joy of that flight, however, was tempered in less than 90 seconds when the LR-99 rocket engine shut down. (laughs) Not a good way to start your flight, right? It was more than 30 seconds early, and with 90 seconds on the mission clock, the rules dictated Adams had to land short of Edwards by going into Cuddyback dry lane. The control room, also known as NASA 1, radioed, Okay, Mike, you look like you're in real good shape. Adams replied, Looks like I could make Edwards. The controller made sure the rules were understood. Let's make it to cutting back, Mike. Even with the emergency landing, Mike's demeanor was unfazed as he said, This thing is fun to fly, even if I had to go to Cuddy Back." Mm-hmm. Adams made a perfect center line touchdown about a half mile into the three mile long dry link bed runway. Fellow X-15 pilot Bill Dana praised Mike's performance during the emergency. He did an excellent job with that. You could tell by the way he was talking that he wasn't uptight about having to go into a strange field on his first flight. The second flight for Adams on 29 November was for further familiarization with the dynamics and handling characteristics of the X-15. He expanded his speed envelope to approximately Mach 4.5. You know, four and a half times the speed of sound. That's the thing with the X-15. This sucker got up and moved. There's no aircraft in the world that's ever approached the X-15 speeds. Wow. And he did this by increasing the engine thrust from simply 50% up to 75%. That's all it took to get there. The increased power of the LR-99 rocket engine was evident and that the higher velocity was achieved even though the burn time was reduced by 30 seconds. Winter weather and wet lake beds put off further flights for anyone in the X-15 for nearly four months. Drier weather permitted flights to resume finally on 22 March. Where he was able to open up the throttles to the full 100%, recording his highest-speed flight in the X-15 at Mach 5.59, 3,622 miles an hour. Launch this time was from the Mud Dry Lake area, nearly twice as far from Edwards as his first two missions. The next flight for Adams expanded his altitude experience up to 167,200 feet. By 15 June, and after three successive aborted attempts, Adams was ready for a much larger leap, topping out at 229,300 feet. With that extra altitude also came extra time at zero G, as the aircraft drifted through the ballistic arc at nearly Mach 5. (laughs) Adams got somewhat annoyed by one aspect of having no gravity to hold things in place. My checklist would keep flopping up and over, and it was waving around in front of me. I kept knocking it down, but it immediately would stand back up again, so I finally just had to quit fighting it. Mike allowed the pages to do as they wanted until gravity returned as he began re-entry. After successful re-entry from 43 miles high, Mike set up on final approach to the Rogers Dry Lake Bend. After landing, he said, Compared to what I could do in the simulator and what I was doing in flight, I don't think I was doing quite as well. Maybe we should fly more often.
1: <laughs> Mike still
0: craved the more aggressive flying schedule. After all, this was why he left Mole. It took more than two months for Adam to get back into the X-15 cockpit and ready for flight 362. What that means is this is aircraft number three and the 60-second flight that it had, it had taken place. Even though it was it had taken too long by Mike's reckoning, he was certainly ready to go. It was the first time since entering the program he accomplished two back-to-back flights with no aborts in between. On 25 August, Mike got ahead on his checklist and was obviously anxious to get underway. Adam sent, uh, went to the launch saying, I hit that switch, I threw the throttle on as fast as I could, and I got a vibration malfunction shutdown. The X-15 continued its unpowered prop toward the ground as Mike ran through his restart checklist. 16 very long seconds later and more than 4,000 feet lower in altitude, the familiar hard acceleration of the rocket finally kicked in. Adams compensated for most of the altitude loss at launch, leveling out just 600 feet below the planned 85,000-foot target. Coming down quickly, he prepared to land, later telling the the debriefers, I don't know where I touched down. It just goes and goes and goes. That thing really floats. You can hold it off a long time. It's a good airplane. As the dust on the lake bed began to settle, and the friction of the skids brought the aircraft to a full stop, The clock read 1.35 p.m. on the afternoon of 25 August, 1967. After six flights, Mike Adams felt he was just getting the feel of this rocket plane. He looked forward to new and more meaningful milestones, and he still had his sights set on space. He had no way of knowing he had just completed his final successful X-15 mission. Mm. Moving to Edwards from Louisiana had originally been a shock for Mm Frida. She had been raised amid the lush green and muggy air of the bayous. There was life everywhere. The high desert of California seemed like being dropped onto Mars. Right. (laughs) I got there and I thought, this is the end of the world. Mm -hmm. But then I finally learned to love it. She found the climate and stark beauty of the area, had a lot to offer. The three children, all born in different states as their father moved from assignment to assignment, seemed to thrive in the adventure of it all. For the senior Adams, it was a new place to explore, as he found it not only the desert, but the as he explored not only the desert, but the nearby mountains and rivers. Frida said it was just a real fun time. We had good friends. He would love to ride up through the countryside. We saw more strange areas that no one else had it ever seen or found. we go up into Tehachapi and see these strange-looking quail, or up toward Kern County where there was a beautiful stream. Wherever Mike was, he was outdoors. Adams also loved his music. Frida remembered he played the guitar, played the piano, and the accordion. He was talented. The kids used to play in bands, and we used to say they got it from their dad. They don't get far away from their dad and his achievements or his life. Hmm. Mike rarely spoke of his flights or his work on the X-15. For the most part, he was regarded as a very serious man. Mike's brother, George, said he had a good sense of humor. He just didn't expose it unless you brought it out in him. This was exemplified in another photo from his days at Edwards. At a time time when the lake beds for stalled X-15 flights because they were too wet from the rains, Mike expressed his displeasure at not flying by having this image taken standing on the rain-soaked dirt umbrella over his head. But an even better indicator of Mike's dry sense of humor was shared by fellow X-15 pilot Pete Knight. Who talked to Mike having to leave Edwards for a few days and asking Pete to drop by his place and water his plants. <laughs> Pete says, so I went over to the house, I got the water bucket out, and I walked around. Every plant was plastic. <laughs> in October
1: 1967,
0: Adam stopped in to see his family in Sacramento and decided to take a quick outing with his childhood buddy, Charles, who told me, we took my dad's boat out. We were sitting out there, waiting for the fish to bite, and Mike said, you know, I'm flying faster than those bullets coming out of a gun. Mm-hmm. It was just fascinating to hear him say that. That was the last time I saw Mike. Oh. Beat Knight took the X-15 to its highest speed on 3 October 1967 achieving Mach 6.70, 4,520 miles an hour. No other aircraft has come even half that fast. This is a speed record that still stands today and considered by many to be the zenith of the X-15 program. Four years earlier, NASA pilot Joe Walker had taken the X-15 to a height of 354,200 feet. That's 67.1 miles, about 10 times the height of a commercial airline. And that record was not beaten until 2004 by Spaceship One. Mm -hmm. Since the first flight by North American Aviation pilot Scott Crossfield on 8 June 1959, the X-15 had been flown by a total of 12 NASA, Air Force, and Navy pilots of 190 research missions. It was a successful and mature program, one that everyone thought was well understood, and dare it be said, routine. Aircraft number three went into final preparations, culminating with closeout of all systems on 13 November. The weather was not favorable, causing a one-day delay before being mated to B-52 number eight. X-15, tail number 66672, was finally ready for launch on Flight 3-65 on the morning of Wednesday, 15 November. Mm. Colonel Joseph P. Cotton spooled up the B-52's eight jet engines and began his taxi onto the Edwards runway. In the right seat was Squadron Leader John Miller on temporary assignment from the Royal Air Force in England. This was Cotton's 12th time piloting the mothership for the X-15 and Miller's second as co-pilot. Jack Russell was in his position as launch panel operator, seated near a bubble window about the midpoint on the right side of the B-52's fuselage. Mike Adams was sealed into the X-15 cockpit, mounted under the right wing. At 9.13 a.m., the B-52 and its X-15 cargo lifted into the air and headed outbound. Adams was just along for the ride at this point, coming over the radio saying, I'm just a tourist. Mm-hmm. The B-52 and two chase planes, piloted by Lieutenant Colonel Fred Cuthill and Hugh Jackson from NASA, proceeded northwest toward the Delamar Dry Lake launch zone. Cotton noted they reached their cruising altitude at 45,500 feet, mm-hmm. faster due to an outside air temperature of minus 42 degrees Fahrenheit that day. Wow. Like to do. A little cooler than today. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. As launch time approached, Jackson moved Chase 2 into launch position about 100 feet to the left and behind the X 15, while Cuthill and Chase 1 moved directly off the B 52's right wing to obtain photo coverage and the drop and climb out. The launch master switch inside the B 52 was activated, allowing Adams to now control his own drop. Pete Knight called from NASA 1. Looks good here, Mike. Adams responded Roger. Two, one, launch. At 10.30 and seven seconds, he commanded his launch release. Falling away from the pylon, he immediately moved the LR-99 throttle to 100% thrust. NASA-1 confirmed. Roger, we've got a good light here, Mike. The X-15 quickly outpaced Cuthill and Jackson in the chase planes. Adams angled upward through the stratosphere, heading to the top of his ballistic arc in the mesosphere. Hmm. This configuration of X-15 number three had two six foot long pods mounted to the tip of each wing. On the left were two experiments which opened at high altitude. One was a micrometeorite collection box, while the other was a solar spectrum measurement device. The right tip pod held an extendable probe known as the Battle Shock Standoff Measurement Experiment. This probe had not been verified in an altitude chamber prior to flight, and in vacuum, it started to arc, causing noise in the wiring of the X-15. This affected operation of several critical systems, including the aircraft's computer, which started to continually dump and reset a total of 61 times before the end of the mission. Mm -hmm. Adams tried to fix the problem, but it kept resetting, causing a major distraction as the flight progressed. Telemetry received on the ground showed Adams was on the flight profile, although they could tell his trajectory was slightly higher than planned. On the ground, they had no idea that the distraction of the computer was causing a second problem. An instrument was set to measure different things based on a switch position. Mike had switched it from re- reading yaw to roll, then apparently forgot due to this computer glitch which distracted him. So he kept reading it as yaw, even though it was actually roll. At peak altitude, he hit 266,000 feet, and seconds later, he had inadvertently started to yaw the X-15 out of heading, quickly reaching 18 degrees to the right of his flight path. Nothing in the control room showed this deviation, so no one knew to tell Mike of the problem. Adams continued to try and center that needle, magnifying the out-of-attitude yaw movement to the side. As he started to head back down towards the atmosphere, the yaw range sped up. In 18 seconds, he was at 28 degrees. After 36 seconds, he passed thir- 90 degrees. Mm-hmm. And just 47 seconds after it started, he rotated the X-15 a complete 180 degrees. In other words, the X-15 was now pointed directly into its flight path, with the back end going first. Oh, God. Air started to bite into the wings and tail surfaces. Because of the reverse orientation, it quickly put the X-15 into a hypersonic spin, which lasted for 43 seconds. Such a condition had never even been envisioned. No other aircraft had ever experienced anything like it before or since. Mike tried to correct the spin using the reaction control jets. He called over the radio to Pete Knight. I'm in a spin, Pete. Knight didn't seem to understand and Mike repeated that call two more times before going silent. NASA-1 continued to call on the radio, never envisioning the disaster unfolding high in the desert sky. Mike may have blacked out from the G-forces spinning him around at a high Mach number. When the X-15 came out of the spin at 120,000 feet, it was once again facing into the direction of flight. A severe up and down porpoising motion at Mach 4.7 began, inflicting 15 plus and minus Gs on the airframe. This quickly exceeded the aircraft's structural limits. At approximately 80,000 feet, the X-15 started to break apart from the aerodynamic loads, with the entire structure failing by the time it descended to 62,000 feet. At 10.35 and 20 seconds, just five minutes and 13 seconds after dropping away from the mothership's wing pylon, X-15 number three impacted the desert floor in a hilly area between Johannesburg and Ridgecrest. Mm -hmm. Mike was killed instantly. As is obvious from the flight radio transcripts, those in the control room and aircraft aloft supporting the mission had no idea of the severity of the events unfolding. Even though Adams radioed three times in just 17 seconds that he was in a spin, it appears to have never fully registered with anyone on the ground. Even at this point, most everyone expected that Mike had somehow either made an emergency landing or hopefully had ejected. It took 10 minutes for someone to see signs of the crash. A helicopter was dispatched where they found the forward fuselage and confirmed the worst. At 11.01 a.m., the flight surgeon made the radio call dispelling any doubt of a miracle. This day started no different for Frida Adams than all the other X-15 flights when her husband was the pilot. She was at the NASA Flight Research Center watching the proceedings as they unfolded. After joining her, also joining her, was Mike's mother, Georgia. She was in town to spend the upcoming Thanksgiving holiday with Mike and friends and Frida and her three grandchildren. It was the first time Georgia had had an opportunity to see her son doing the job which had made him famous Back in Sacramento, Frida sat quietly with Georgia in the NASA control room, not wanting to get in anyone's way as the flight proceeded. But soon after she heard that faithful call from Mike, I'm in a spin, Pete, she knew something was wrong. Almost immediately, even as events continued to unfold, someone in the control room had the presence of mind to realize Frida and Georgia should not be in that room. She recalled that. We were standing, listening, and of course, everything was going awry. They quickly got us out of there. I can remember I wanted to help Georgia. I wanted to be sure she was protected from whatever. So I was trying to be the mother hen to her when I was falling apart myself. Mm -hmm. Several of the people I spoke with expressed grave misgivings about the X-15 program following this tragedy. This stemmed from how they felt the program had somehow lost sight of its objectives. Harry Shapiro, an engineer on the external tank system at North American, said, North American was very concerned there was a lackadaisical manner about the way the people were handling this aircraft. I think the company felt we were going to lose more if we had this manner. We really had to treat each flight as a critical item. X-15 pilot Robert White shared his same sentiment, saying, I often felt that sometimes we went too far with these things. When I was participating in the program, your eye was always on the ball. It was very intense. Now you're starting to take this as a routine thing. Boy, this is not routine stuff. Then there was that dual instrument presentation you flip a switch and it would show you something happening, and you'd flip it another way, and the same needle would show you something else. I thought, give me a break. That NASA is a different kind of NASA than the one that I operated with. In the context of the opinions of both Shapiro and White, it can be argued that the historical roots to the later Challenger and Columbia space shuttle mm-hmm. disasters can be seen as early as 1967, with the Adams accident. In the investigations for all three, people could go back and say they saw the problems beforehand, yet no one was able to able to, or willing to step forward to get the attention of those who could have broken the chain of events before they spiraled out of control. The traversing probe experiment in the X-15 wing tip pod produced electrical problems because it had never been tested in vacuum and was the ultimate root cause of what happened that fateful day. Yet instead of questioning this lack of testing, someone assumed since it had flown before, then that was good enough. As was stated in both space shuttle loss investigations, the deviation from normal was now being accepted as the new normal. Any variance or expected parameters should never be considered routine, and certainly not as normal. Good people died in all three cases because of complacency and not wanting to be the one to stand up and say that anything was wrong. Mm. <clears throat> Directly as a result of Adam's accident and the subsequent investigation and report, two specific changes were made in the way the X-15 program was run. First was that future flights would ensure the pilot had all of his pitch, roll, yaw, heading, and angle of attack information, and that a telemetry channel down to NASA-1 would provide these same data to the controllers on the ground in real time. Even though the X-15 continued to fly for nearly a year, the heart of the program had been shattered, along with Mike Adams and X-15 number 3. Funding existed through the end of 1968, but no one wanted to push their luck anymore before it was finished. X-15 crew chief Charlie Baker says, We were a nice little team, a family. You knew all the pilots. It was a glorious thing until that day. When you lose one of your family to lose a part of yourself. Mm-hmm. Out of three rocket planes, only the number one ship was left to finish out the program. Once the investigation was completed, the broken remains of X 15 number three were sanctioned to be buried in an unmarked grave in the desert. For Mike, his legacy is that the flight test community learned a powerful lesson in safety. Ten years before his last mission, pilots seemed to be throwaway items out at the base. Almost every week, someone was being replaced after one crash or another. A decade later, losing a pilot to an in-flight accident was a rarity. Unfortunately, these lessons were apparently not transferred to the space shuttle program, later costing two very expensive vehicles and two irreplaceable crews. After a tragedy strikes, the exact moment becomes a fixed point in time, one which never diminishes in memory. Charles Gurdell, Mike's best friend, was crossing the 8th Street Bridge in Sacramento when he heard the news on the radio. Mike's brother, George, was in an attorney's office. I got a phone call there from a military spokesman, and he informed me of the fatal accident. It was a severe shock. Suddenly, you're going to have to cope with something that heretofore was not possible— It's like everything else, you just don't think it's going to happen to him or to you. A memorial service was held at the Edwards-Base Chapel on Saturday, 18 November at 3 p.m. Chaplain Roy gave the eulogy and Tony, the flight testing profession has lost a dedicated pilot and the United States Air Force has sustained a great loss. He gave his life doing the thing he most wanted to do. It was a sentiment echoed by Charles Gerdell when he said, Mike loved that plane. We hated to see him go, but he died doing something he loved. I couldn't imagine Mike being an old folks home someday. The memorial concluded with the people filing outside for a last tribute as a group of Edwards Flight Test Center pilots flew a formation of jet fighters over the chapel, one of the planes pulling up sharply as they passed overhead. A tribute to the missing man. Within just a few weeks, Frida and her children had to vacate their home at Edwards. She chose to move the family back to Louisiana rather than to Sacramento. Her roots were in the South. You got to go right back to your own people, she told me firmly. Mike also went with her to be interred close by. Frida thought it was the right thing to do. The family in Sacramento did not argue. She always remained close close to Mike's family and often across the country to visit. Frida settled in Monroe, Louisiana, returned to college to finish her master's degree, where she also met her future second husband, George, a college professor who specialized in theater arts. I loved working in my flower garden, you didn't get to do that at Edwards. Mike's X-15 flight had been scheduled for an altitude of 250,000 feet, uh, but his peak altitude ended up being 266,000 feet. These extra three miles made a lot of difference in one very specific respect. In the 1960s, the US Air Force held the official position that any pilot who exceeded 50 miles was to be considered an astronaut. On 15 November 1967, Mike Adams accomplished his goal in the X-15 with less than half a mile to spare. In the end, his dream of entering space had finally been realized. On Tuesday, 16 January 1968, Freda made the 80-mile trek west to Barksdale Air Force Base. There was little ceremony. She received her husband's silver Air Force astronaut wings. It was a status for her husband, which Freda would have preferred to forego if Mike had instead returned alive from his flight. You can't help but be bitter when you have to go through something like that, she said. Just think what could have been. (coughs) Looking back at her years with Mike, she had regrets, but also wonderful memories. We had a good life and all. When he would go out early, he'd fly over the house and wave those wings. I was out waiting for him to see him fly by. A memorial created by Eagle Scout John Videlski now marks the spot in the desert where Mike Adams lost his life. <coughs> yes. One evening, long, not long before his final flight, Mike Adams decided to take his two boys, Mike Jr. and Brent, along with their nephew, David, out to the NASA hangar at Edwards for a private tour of the area where their father and uncle worked, At the time of his nocturnal visit to the hangar, it was filled with a wide variety of experimental aircraft in all sorts of strange shapes and colors. Adams let the boys explore and even opened up some of the aircraft so they could sit in the cockpits to pretend they were flying at high Mach numbers themselves Remembering his long-ago childhood, a giant grin appeared as Brent recalled that magical night with his father. I believe all three X-15s were in there that particular night. I'll never forget that. Dave said, I remember walking beneath the B-52 as we entered the area, and it was just amazing to have done that. I remember that so vividly. It really left an impression on me. I asked Brent which image is the first to come to mind when he speaks of his father. It would be with a flight suit on, out there standing on the lake bed. If there was a second image, it would be fishing or something like at Lake Tahoe. The image of Mike out in the forest or on a lake is the way so many of his family and friends remember him, although the public image was always of a serious man standing stiff and unsmiling next to the X-15. Mike was much more than that, Bill Dana related. He was just a great big bear of a guy. Mike was really laid back compared to the average test pilot who was running at max gain all the time. He was just different from the other guys in the program. With all Mike that had gone through from losing the NASA astronaut selection due to the F-104 ejection injury, becoming frustrated with the lack of progress at mole, to the point of leaving that program and finally being selected to fly as one of the elite test pilots on the X-15, maybe in the end, Mike found his heart being drawn in a different direction. Perhaps inner peace for Mike Adams would not have been in outer space, but in the back country of America. Dana shared a thought that opened up a tiny window into the soul of Mike Adams. Hmm. He talked like he was ready to get out of the Air Force and go be a forest ranger. (laughs) I don't think he actually would have done it, but that's what he claimed he wanted to do, go be a forest ranger. he might have chosen this new path and been exceptionally good at it if fate had not intervened so tragically. Thank you for being here to honor Mike Adams today. I've been honored to share his life story with you. I hope you will remember Mike the next time you look up at the space on a clear night. Mm-hmm. Good day to you all. Thank you. If you have any questions about Mike, the XOT program, I'd be happy to answer them for you. Thank you so much. Yes.
1: <laughs> um. So Frida and his mother were there when he was
2: crashing?
0: Yes, yes they were.
2: Oh God, what was their reaction? They took him out of the room. Yeah, they took, I know they took him out, of the, out of the room, but they must have been totally flipped. Yeah. Oh my God. That. Yeah,
0: you can imagine their reactions in that <laughs> case, especially in Georgia. <laughs> who would never been there. Remember, Frida was there for every flight. She always was there whenever Mike was flying. So, you know, she was always right there by his side. And to have Georgia's mom there mm-hmm. when all this was unfolding, I just can't imagine what that, what had to be going through their heads at the time. It was mm-hmm. devastating, completely, yeah, completely, Absolutely devastated. Completely she was gone. Oh yeah, yeah. I know that feeling. Yeah, and, and it's, what's, Exceptionally sad too, is of course he had his three children. Uh, the daughter, Elise, was the youngest, and then Brent was the middle, and Mike Jr. was the first child. And Mike never recovered from his father's loss. You know, his namesake and everything else, and he just went nowhere in his life. He actually had a uh, congressional mandate to allow him to go to any of the military academies to follow in his father's footsteps, he couldn't do it. He ended up life as a janitor in a football stadium in Monroe, Louisiana. And unfortunately, about two years ago, he took his own life. Mm-hmm. So it was very sad. I, I, I met both him and Brent. Uh, I was back in Louisiana. Uh, you saw some of the pictures there uh, with Frida and stuff. And can't say enough about Frida. She just passed away not too long ago. Just an absolutely wonderful lady. Uh, Her and her husband welcomed me with open arms when I when I drove back there. And they would not hear of letting me go to a hotel or anything. It's like you will stay here. Mm -hmm. And you know, we are going to put you up and we're going to be cooking dinner for you and everything else. Absolutely wonderful people. And uh, you also saw there's a picture of Brent and Dave. That was we've greatly expanded the uh, uh, Mike Abbott Memorial out there near Ridgecrest now. And it's just really an amazing site out there. Uh, we have some very large uh, uh, panels and stuff that describe the X-15, the pilots, what happened in the accident, things like that, that go along with that original concrete memorial that you saw in one of the pictures that was put up there. Actually, May mark the 20th anniversary of when that memorial was first put up out in the desert and we're hoping to have an event out there that day to celebrate the 20th anniversary. We haven't made any firm plans for it yet, but hopefully that will happen. But it's just been really amazing to see how it's expanded over the years. Uh, One of our people that's here today, Bob, there in the back is one of the people that's really helped on that expansion. Uh, The other person that um, was amazing on on that was a guy named Robin (coughs) Rukas from ELM who works out there, that's his territory. And he has done so much out there to, uh, to do this. Uh, so we have, there's like a sign-in book. We had people from all over the world that have come out there and visited that site. And it's one of the things, if you go to my website, you can download uh, a tour book that I actually created where you can actually go all around and see the different sites associated with the X15, including exactly how to get out to uh, the crash site, things like that. So, anyway, sorry, long, long um, explanation for your question there. Uh, anybody else have any other questions? So they
2: made the um, memorial 20 years ago out in the desert.
0: Yeah, it was it was uh, dedicated in May of 2004.
2: But he crashed earlier. Yeah, he closed it, it. Crashed in
0: 1967. Right. There, there's. There's a group of people out there who actually go to these sites. They try to find the different sites where major air accidents mm-hmm. have occurred. And uh, so the, the spot where the X-15 crashed had been located, you know, of course, a long time ago by some of these people. They call themselves X-Hunters. And this uh, John Badelski was getting ready to do his community service project for his Eagle Scout. And his advisor uh, was a guy named Greg Frazier with the Civil Air Patrol. Uh, and uh, he's a huge fan of the X-15, and he came up with this idea for John and said, why don't you create a memorial for Mike Adams out in the desert? Mm-hmm. And so if you go out, there's other major crash sites in that area, like the B 70 crash, things like that, mm-hmm. and people have gone out there and erected little monuments or put flowers or anything, but now we have this really beautiful monument that John created, this truncated cone, which has the plaque. The plaque is actually made of Inconel X, the same material that the X-15 was made out of. And then we've put up these display boards. There's a giant concrete X that's been put out there. So you can see it from orbit, it's really amazing. And it's fairly easy to get to the, the road, it's about a quarter of a mile off the, uh, uh, off of a place called Trona Road uh, up there near Johannesburg. But it's really easy to grade, they keep that well graded and stuff like that. So we were out there in 2017. goes back to your question earlier. When I first presented this was in 2017 for the 50th anniversary of Mike's loss. And we went out there and we had this huge, huge ceremony to honor Mike that day. We had probably about 120 people or so, maybe more, out there at the site. Uh, We
1: had
0: a a, barbecue. A guy named Domingo who runs a Mexican restaurant in Moron, and he came out there and fed everybody. You know, it was just amazing, didn't charge anything for anybody. We just had people lined up eating his great food. And uh, uh, we did some presentations out there. We got lots of newspaper coverage, which was wonderful for Mike. And uh, I ended up doing this presentation first up in Ridgecrest, which is about 20 miles north of the 395 from the crash site. And then also came down right after leaving the crash site that day. I'd done done that presentation the night before, Uh, so it was November 14th. But on the 15th, on the 50th anniversary, we actually went into Randsburg, which is just like, four miles away. And it's a little, like, ghost town. There's only, like, what, 60 people that still live in that town. And uh, they have the Randsburg Opera House that was built in the 1880s. And actually gave this presentation that day, and sitting there in the front row was Brent and Dave, two of Mike's family, and uh, talk about being under pressure having them sitting right there. if They didn't like what I was going to say, uh, and uh, I was very moved that they both enjoyed the program and they thought we did Mike justice. So, yeah, so it was it was a heck of a day. And as I say, we've been doing this ever since. I just did this pre- specific presentation just a few weeks ago, uh, down in uh, uh, Costa Mesa, which was really nice, Um, at a place called Brookdale, which was great. So I'm amazed that people are still asking me to do this specific presentation. And of course I do my X-15 rocket plane presentation as well. And uh, I've done, this is number 139. I've done done talks about Mike Adams and the X-15 and stuff 139 times now. I got another one coming up, real big one coming up uh, on the 15th of February, and I'm looking forward to that, so. Pretty soon you'll get yeah. it right. Um. <laughs> yeah, I know, I keep, I keep working on it, I keep working on it. I know, it's like this one especially, I don't give this nearly as much as the, X, the main X15 presentation, and especially with the subject matter, I wanna make sure I'm not screwing it up, so I'm always keeping my head down and making sure I stick with the script. If I didn't stick with the script, we'd be here all day, and uh, I just, I don't want to mess up the story. So, so pardon me for having my head down most of the time here, yeah. Pam,
2: yeah. Um, I'm just curious how well my abs knew Joe Walker, cause I, you know, uh, when I was in seventh grade, you know the story, oh, yeah. but um, his parents, 66, I think he died. Um, June. June, June. What was it? June six. 6th. June 6th, six. So June six. But what? How? How close were the pilots with each other? Did Did Mike know Joe real well? I
0: mean, because. I do don't know, I don't know if You know any
2: of that kind of stuff? I
0: don't know if he knew him that well because by the point that Mike came on the program, Joe had already left the program. So you know they were still there, and Joe was in the NASA office. See, Joe was a NASA pilot, and Mike was an Air Force pilot. So they also would have been in separate offices as well. Oh wow! So they probably knew each other. They probably had come across each other, but yeah, they w- they weren't working in the same office, and they weren't on the same program at the time either, because Joe left the program. Actually, you saw the earlier presentation, the uh, NASA film that we showed this morning, and uh, they had interviews on there with Joe Walker, and that was pretty much the end of Joe Walker's tenure on the X-15, was right about the time that that uh, was filmed. Joe Walker was the number one NASA pilot, and it's interesting because, you know, one of the pilots on the program is Neil Armstrong, Mm -hmm. and so everybody knows Neil Armstrong, but I know at that time, when I was first getting excited about the X-15, uh, you know I was like five years old, the first time I saw an X-15 in person, with my dad taking me up there and you know walking around the hangars and stuff. And for me, Joe Walker was the guy. Joe Walker was like, he was a number one. And that was the guy, I had to get his autograph, I had to do all this stuff. He, he was the one that's like, Neil, who's Neil? But I actually did meet Neil when he was still on the program. And I uh, didn't see him again until I went in to interview him many years later in Ohio. But uh, yeah, Joe was definitely the guy. He was at, and and Bob White because they were the NASA and Air Force pilots, so they were doing all the stuff. Uh, Joe did the highest altitude flights, and Bob did the highest speed flights at that time.
2: So their offices were still at Edwards, right? We just had separate mm-hmm. offices. Yeah, separate. The the separate Air Force, the Air Force area is is. But that's way back. From
0: yeah, it's several miles from the NASA okay. offices.
1: So yeah. Okay. yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, uh, I was just going to say, do you have any other pictures of the memorial? Because that one
0: from the side, it just looks, you know, I see where you're trying to right. illustrate the, the cone thing, but, right. but the face of it would be nice to see in your presentation. Well, I think I had the, the slide right after that had the, the actual plaque. Oh, okay, I missed oh, that. Sorry, yeah, it was, it was, it was all not my fault. Oh, not, not a problem. And if you go to my website, that's one of the things too, is you know my book, uh, my book took me 30 years to write from mm. start to publication. So that is literally my life's work. <laughs> and uh, amazingly, it's been out for almost 11 years now. I still find that very hard to believe. We had a really great celebration last April on the 10th anniversary, which was a lot of fun. But going around and talking to all these people, i spoken to, I was able to speak to nine out of the 12 pilots, three of them passed away before I was starting my, my first research. But I did talk to family members from all of uh, the, the X-15 pilots. Uh, I spoke to, as I say, two out of the three. I never have gotten to meet Lee. From Mike Adams, but uh, I really talked to Walker's kids and McKay's kids, all these other kids and stuff, uh, because they weren't around, so I was able to get their stories. Also, able to talk to other people in the program, like Paul Bickle. Again, if you saw the earlier uh, video, Paul Bickle was on there talking, and he was the head of the of the program. And uh, also, for like fifty years, he held the world's altitude record in a glider, which was amazing. And he was also one of Neil Armstrong's best friends. And so I have all the best stories from Neil, from Paul. (laughs) His boss was telling me all the good stuff. And that's what you find, if you go to my book, my book is set up, it's basically biographies of each one of the 12 pilots. So that's the heart of the book is, you know, talking about Scott Crossfield, Joe Walker, Bob White, all these guys and with the emphasis on the X-15 program, but just talking about their lives, talking with the flight planners, the managers, the technicians, the mechanics, the rocket shop guys, all that to give them a voice which, you know, nobody's ever done that, and I just feel so honored to be able to give them all the voice. And unfortunately, so many of them are gone now, so it makes it even more precious, so.
1: Only one is alive.
0: Yeah, there's only one, one of the pilots is alive. Out of the 12 pilots, 11 of them are now gone. Um, and as I say, uh, Joe Walker died uh, in the B 70 f 104 crash and Mike Adams in the X-15 crash. And then Jack McKay, you also saw in the earlier uh, film, the rollover accident, that was Jack McKay who was in that. And he had uh, terrible repercussions from that crash. He actually recovered after like four months in the hospital but then went back to the X-15 program and flew like 34 more flights in the program, but he ended up dying of his injuries 13 years after the accident occurred. Mm, So those were the three guys I didn't get to talk to. But the only one who's left now is Joe Engel, and Joe is just such a wonderful guy. He is the epitome of a gentleman. I've given several talks with him and stuff. Uh, Unfortunately, his health is very declining right now, I think he's confined to a wheelchair at this point. He's living back in Texas. And, How uh, old is he? He's uh, 92. Wow. Yeah. So, but uh, yeah, we gave talks at the Air Force Academy together and uh, at Space Fest in Tucson and places like that. Just an absolutely fantastic guy. And he's also the one who wrote the foreword for my book, so I'm very proud of that as
2: well. <laughs> so. Wow. Yeah. Thank you. That was super interesting. Well, yeah,
0: thank you. Really cool. Thank you all for being here today. It was great to see uh, an almost full house and stuff. I <laughs> hope everybody got some tape. Oh, yeah. And, uh, <laughs> and I'll just throw out the invite as well. Now, we do have one more film that we're going to show after this, which is called The Rocket Pilots. I want to give a plug for The Rocket Pilots primarily for the fact that this is, pro- you know, since I was five years old, I wanted to write a book. I had no idea what I was gonna write. But one of the instigators that took me in this direction of saying that X-15 is what I wanted to write about was this film that you're gonna see. It was done by NBC News in September of 1981. Mm-hmm. And that was one of the things that I sent them and said, oh yeah, I think there's a story there to be told. So I hope you'll stick around and watch that as well. And if anybody is interested, after we finish here and all the stuff gets packed up while we leave, leave for the day. Uh, We're going down to Northwoods Restaurant, which is about four miles south on the the freeway here at the Valley View exit, and we're going to be celebrating Cherie's birthday there for (laughs) dinner. So anybody here is more than welcome to come and join us at Northwoods afterwards today, too. So thank you again for having me here. And we thank you uh, for Michelle who has, uh, um, oh. we have the, yeah, as well as uh on behalf of the ADA Los Angeles Las Vegas section. we thank wow. Michelle for uh that's a that's a cool frame. Yeah, yeah. It's that's very nice. you Thank you.
1: Thank you so much. you.